What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome back to the show. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Nicole Otto. Welcome back, Nicole. It's great to see you again. Yes, it's good to see you in person instead of just on Slack. That's true. Yeah. Well, it's been a busy time. A lot is happening. We now have over 140 shows on our network, originals, as well as some of our partners that we're distributing. And we have a lot of really fun projects in development. Well, time enough for that. But we, we still got to make time for stories to keep you up at night. So... <laughs> Let's just dive right in. Today, we've got a very moving story set in a world where people develop their own distinct superpowers after reaching a certain age. After the death of one young man, her sister searches for answers. This is Conspicuous Plumage, written by Sam J. Miller and voiced by Keeler Lee. Summer meant freedom. And freedom was terrifying. Every window was open. Every curtain billowed in the breeze. Darkness came and the street went on forever. I sat on the porch and hugged my knees, watched where Trench Street vanished into the gloom. Who was to say who or what might come walking up that street, into my life, and what terrifying things they might bring? Worse, Who was to say where I could go and what might happen to me when I got there? Certainly not mom and dad. My parents were frozen solid all summer long. Ice froze their tongues at dinner time. They said nothing to each other, nothing to me. My questions got cold, brittle looks and ice shard answers. Even the television stayed turned down low as if too much sound might shatter the icicle palace their grief had built. Sometimes I couldn't handle the ice, the silence, and I'd do something dumb, something I knew I shouldn't, like someone might stand at the edge of a cliff and scream, even though they know it'll cause an avalanche and they might get crushed, because anything is better than freezing to death. For example, you never make spaghetti anymore because spaghetti was my brother's favorite. Or, we should watch Ed Sullivan tonight, because my brother always made us watch it. And somehow, always, through the sheer magnitude of his enthusiasm, made us enjoy it. Taylor Elizabeth, my mother would say, when my father got up suddenly and fled to the upstairs bathroom. When I was little, my parents only used my first and middle names together, when I was being very bad. Now, it's all they call me. My brother's hands became birds when he danced. Mere metaphors at first, 
the blur of motion and grace making them into something emblematic of freedom. And then, birds. Two of them, sometimes. His hands having broken free of his body and the miserable fixed limits of flesh. And sometimes, a whole flock swooping and whirling around him. Sometimes, in his most inspired moments, like the time he and his friends staged a show in the gutted strip mall shell of where the ballet school used to be, by the end of his dance, he'd be nothing but birds. We still have photos. Look close, and there is no carry. Only starlings, grackles, owls, robins, whippoorwills, Carrie's favorite. An ornithologist's nightmare of interspecies cooperation. I saw the body. My parents wouldn't. Movies make IDing a corpse into this big, traumatic thing, where moms weep and dads vow revenge. But really, it doesn't have to be a parent. It doesn't even have to be family. Two people who knew the person well. One, in some cases. But for Carrie, it was two. Because the town is small, and the funeral parlor guy was a family friend who'd seen my brother go from gangly fireball child to the solid, handsome body that landed on his table. Blue lips, purple patches all over his body. Black where the skin had broken. Dried blood, mostly cleaned up, but still visible in crusty streaks here and there. All terrible, I know. All signs of the violent end he met. But beautiful, too. In a way Carrie would have appreciated. Like he'd transformed into something else. Conspicuous plumage, the anti-camouflage effect of brightly colored feathers found in predatory birds, creatures too terrifying and magnificent to need to hide from anyone. Did he freeze to death? Beaten into a coma and left in the woods, in flannel and jeans and awful North Country February? Did he die of his injuries? Bleed to death? Hard to say, our funeral parlor friend said. And even though the cops did their own autopsy, they didn't dig too deep. Guys turn up dead along the Northway sometimes. It's just a thing that happens. When it's a drug dealer or a gay guy or some other segment of the population that police believe is especially prone to ending up dead, they don't spend too much time looking for cause of death. Because they already know it. Dude made bad decisions is what they figure. And this is what happens. Pterodactyls and tigers prowled the bowling alley parking lot. Elvis thumped from car speakers. Hank Williams. Boys everywhere, squatting on fenders or leaning back behind the wheel, blowing cigarette smoke lewdly in my direction. Streaks of fire circled me as I walked. Blue, green, and white. Beautiful in their way, but nothing I wanted to stop and look at. Inside was better. Beer and cigarette stink the sharp fake vanilla of the spray they use on the rental shoes. Old men and women and middle-aged ones with no particular need or desire to display. Hey, I said to Hiram Raff, who was right where I thought he'd be, polishing shoes in a corner where hardly anyone ever looked. Off the high school softball field, Hiram was all awkward stammers and intentionally poor posture, ashamed and afraid of the adulation he had unwillingly earned. Hey, he said a little nervously, like, what does this person want from me? How you doing? I asked, 
fingers rubbing at an invisible spot on the counter. I'm all right, he said, and his pretty face said he most certainly was not. I felt awful, like I was frightening a small animal for selfish reasons, but I could not stop now. I heard you can make people see things, I said. Lines appeared between his eyes and at the edges of his mouth. Poor boy looked close to bursting, into tears maybe, or simply bursting. I was a monster, I knew, but I had to say what I'd come here to say. I owed it to my brother. Can you help me? Can you come on a road trip with me? I had two pieces of information about Hiram Raff, both of them ill-gotten, gossip-derived, common knowledge. Things he was deeply irrationally ashamed of for reasons that were his own. The first was what I'd already said, that under certain circumstances, he could cause visions of the past, of the future, of fictional scenarios that had never been and would never be. And whether he or anyone else could tell the difference was subject to much conjecture. The second was that he had a congenital terminal case of politeness. Hiram was a boy who could never tell anyone no, which is why instead of fleeing from my invasive request as he clearly wanted to, he frowned down at the plastic shoe in his hands and said, when? Our house used to be alive with color. Walls would shift from blue to red without warning. The black and white beginning of The Wizard of Oz would be as bright and technicolor as the rest of it. My father's eyes could change from emerald to gold. On nights when my mom and dad were getting ready to go out without us, the air around us would dance with a kind of small-scale aurora borealis. When we were little, my brother and I would run through the hallways playing with it, flapping our arms and blowing hard to watch the dancing clouds react. My parents were 17 when Carrie was conceived, 18 when he was born. Carrie was 18 when he died. They're young, someone said at the funeral, too young for something so awful. And I wondered, when in your life it became okay for terrible things to happen to you? Since then, the colors in our house are dead, stuck, static. Our pea green bathroom wallpaper will not become anything else. Mom could make them change, and Dad could make them move, but now they do neither. Hey, Dad, I said the morning I was going to meet Hiram. August already, and hot. Dad was on the porch, as he often was, watching the end of the road, not drinking. Drinking was another thing that had stopped. Hey, he said, and scooted over to make room on the porch swing for me. I'm going to the movies, I said. Okay. Not with who, not when will you be back. Having a father who let you do whatever you wanted was nowhere near as great as I'd thought it would be. I sat, waited. He didn't put his arm around me, didn't say a word. I stood up. He tried to smile and did not entirely succeed. I kissed his forehead, turned to go. I wanted to shake him, scream, stomp my feet, howl, but I knew none of those things would make a difference. Dad was frozen solid in there, somewhere. It would take something truly brutal to thaw him out. 
Hiram waved when he saw me. For a second, he was a little boy, his smile wide and his motions impulsive, uncontrollable. He bounded down the steps and got into the car, and my heart felt happy, light, like I was getting somewhere, like something would happen today, like a box had opened. Hi, he said. Hey, hi, I said. Do you like rock? He asked, fiddling with the radio before his seatbelt was buckled. Sure, I said, and remembered my brother the first time he heard Fats Domino, how his whole body moved, even while standing still. He'd been 13 then, and me 11, and it was the first time I ever saw the birds. Three of them, ravens, probably, or no real bird at all, just a fledgling expression of the man my brother was becoming. And then they were red, and then they were green, and my mom was in the doorway laughing. He turned the knob slowly, navigating through the sea of static, landing on something mild and empty. Pat Boone, I said. Gross. You don't like him? He didn't write this song. My brother said the only reason anyone knows who the hell Pat Boone is because most of the radio stations in this country won't play the guys who actually wrote these songs. Why not? Whites only, I said. Carrie was forever sending in for the things advertised in the backs of magazines down at the library, getting pamphlets and books in the mail. My brother knew things no one else in town knew. Hiram was silent. I didn't know that, he said, and frowned, and began to turn the knob again. Route nine, I said, and then head for the Northway. Only terrible music was on the radio. He turned it off when we arrived back at Pat Boone. I'm sorry about your brother. Thank you, I said. Our windows were down and we were leaving our town behind, and it almost didn't hurt to hear someone mention him. Is that where we're going? It is. I don't want revenge. This is not that kind of story. Even if I could find out who did this to my brother, there's nothing I want to do to them. Living life after doing something like that is its own kind of punishment. And if he's there, the kind of person, people, who could kill somebody as beautiful as my brother, well, being that broken will cause him slash them far more pain in the future than puny Taylor Elizabeth could ever dish out. What I want is to know how it happened. What I want is to know how to make it not happen to me. What can you do? Hiram asked. And when I didn't answer, what's your gift? Dead things whizzed past the car. Houses, trees, boulders. A whole frozen world of things, baking in the summer heat. Things that might have danced once, but would never dance again. I don't know, I whispered. I'm afraid to try. Yeah, Hiram said, and his voice sounded as thin and fragile as mine did. That's smart. Driving, Hiram looked very sincere and thoughtful. His face relaxed, and he didn't seem anxious or frightened the way he always did when he spoke. So I let a long time go by without saying anything. The river was fat, sluggish still. 
Even the plumes of black smoke from the factories we passed just hung there, as motionless as the columns they came from. How did you know, he asked, what I can do? There was no safe answer, nothing that wouldn't hurt him, nothing that wouldn't crack that lovely face down the middle. I'd been about to say something like, I don't know, it's just something I overheard someone saying, but I saw now that this would hurt him even more, even if it was the truth. To be reminded that he was gossiped about, to hear again how the stories were passed from stranger to stranger would be too devastating for fragile, private little Hiram Raff. Sharon told me, I said, thinking fast. On the median, between the north and southbound lanes was a willow. Beside it slept a mammoth, big as the tree itself, long tusks and dense brown wool. Beside that sat a man ragged and guitar-wielding, a traveler, a vagabond, a hitchhiker who couldn't find a ride. What might that mammoth do if he caught sight of me? A mile passed, maybe five. Then Hiram said, what did she tell you? I looked out my window. Hardly anything, just what you could do. I'd been asking around to see who might be able to help me. And what exactly do you want me to help you with? He whispered. I said nothing. I wasn't entirely sure myself. My plan was flimsy, poorly plotted, a child's plan. My brother would have known how to do this right. My brother had skills he was not afraid to use. And while I hadn't planned on telling Hiram, that seemed like the best way not to have to talk anymore about what had happened between him and Sharon and what she did afterwards. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. On a remote island in 
frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't Hiram who Sharon wanted. His big brother, Herc, was the one who wore the mantle of sports star the way it was supposed to be worn. Hard drinking, friends with everyone, dumb in an attractive sort of way. Quick to anger, eager to sleep with any girl who looked his way, and more than a few that did not. When Herc went away to college, all of Mohawk High grieved. Under their father's brutal tutelage, both boys had become baseball prodigies. But while Herc accepted and embraced that violent masculinity, Hiram balked at it. So he wasn't prepared to stand outside of his brother's shadow. Least of all when it came to the women who'd flocked to him for the multitude of social perks that hooking up with him provided, and who now looked to Hiram to fill the same function. And while Hiram could avoid the beer-soggy parties and evade the post-game advances of most of Mohawk High's would-be popularity opportunists, He was no match for Sharon Baranchik. I saw, I don't know what I saw. The whole time it was like the sky was pure cinemascope. People I've never seen before, but who looked totally familiar. Like maybe they were me in the future or, I don't know, a past life or something. And his eyes did this adorable scrunched up thing. She went on like that to anyone who would listen her story so full of details that they must have mostly been made up. Nobody believed all of it, but enough people believed enough of it that Hiram was so upset he stayed home sick from school for three days. I'd always believed that this had broken him. Watching him drive now, I was fairly certain he'd been broken long before that, probably by something tiny, or not even a something, but a nothing, a missing piece some tiny but crucial ingredient in the cake that was a fully functional human being. And I thought of my brother, who dedicated whole dance cycles to trying to figure out why it was that he liked boys when most boys liked girls. And I thought of how hard it must be to end up completely normal, and whether I had, and whether I'd know it if I hadn't. I want to go to where it happened, I said where my brother was murdered. And I want you to show me what actually happened. Oh, Taylor, he said, his voice like a boy about to cry. That's a terrible idea. I know, I said. I need to see it. Are you with me? Hiram said nothing, because Hiram was still a boy who could not say no. It doesn't work like that, he said. I can't control what people see. The chances that you'll see what you want to see. I'll help you, I said. How will you do that? I have no idea, I said, and laughed, and so did he. The Northway was narrowing by then. As we left behind the grimy little cities that surround the state capitol, nothing ahead of us but tiny, dead, frozen, solid summer towns all the way to Canada. And if you do manage to see, wouldn't that be worse? Yes. I believe Carrie's birds are what killed him. 
People are afraid of beautiful things. They hate how they make them feel. The loss of control. The emotion that overwhelms. Carrie danced and people felt things. Of course, college was where he blossomed, where he found the people who would love him as much as we did, where he'd no longer be a swan among ducklings. He would have tasted that freedom and lost his mind. Every boy would have been desperate to have him, and he'd have been only too happy to be had. He'd only been away at school for six months when he was killed. He flew straight into the sun the first chance he got. Was it a jilted boyfriend? Or some macho man who saw his show and felt things inside that he'd spent his whole life fighting? Maybe another dancer. Someone who moved in clouds of smoke or schools of fish and saw Carrie's magnificence and knew she'd never be half as good, a third as beautiful. Whatever it was, his birds were at the bottom of it. And once I knew how, once I could connect the dots of how his gorgeous gift got him killed, I could be certain that mine, whatever it was, never would. We got out of the car, stretched, stood there, stunned, turned to stone by the staggering heat of the August sun. Do you know where? Hiram asked, but he didn't know how to end the sentence. Finally, he settled on, where we're going? I think so, I said, but did not move. During the semester, the place would be packed, full of anxious, energetic boys and girls, finally out from under the thumbs and watchful eyes of mothers, fathers, small-town busybodies, churches, synagogues. During the semester, the place would be enchanted and exciting, but now it was just as dead and frozen as the place we'd come from. I took a few breaths, but couldn't detect what Carrie had told me about on the phone. The way the whole world smells different here. A week before he died, Carrie performed. A recital at the campus's brand new hog-ugly performing arts center. That's where Hiram and I went. It wasn't where he died, but it was the first stop I had to make. The performance was a smash success. Everyone fell in love with Carrie then. He called us glowing, drunk on success, from a backstage payphone. Behind him was a sea of laughter. Happiness. Mom and dad were out when he called. Back then, they still went out. We talked, my brother and I, until someone drunk on actual alcohol took the receiver out of his hand and said to me, he's got to go now, everyone wants to pet him. Hiram and I went inside. No doors were locked to us. No one was guarding anything. We sat in the front row. We climbed up on stage. We went behind the curtain and into the dressing rooms. We found the payphone he had called me from. I held it to my ear, listened to the dial tone, that single note of hope and possibility that could connect me to anyone anywhere in the world and maybe even ring up the past or the future. If I only knew the right number to dial, I might reach my brother, 17, in our kitchen, still considering what college to go to, still exploring the edges of his gift and tell him never to go anywhere, to stay in the town he hated, and never do anything with the thing that made him happiest, the thing that made him the most beautiful. I listened, and I felt nothing. Not the love and joy and warmth of his presence, 
not the hate and fire and brutal metal rods of his destroyers. I hung up the phone. I pressed both hands to my face. The ice wasn't in the world. It was in me. Hiram picked up a chair. He swung it at the wall hard. It fell to the ground undamaged. What the heck? I asked him. Thought it might be one of those stage chairs, he said. You know, the breakaway kind. The one they smash for dramatic effect. Dramatic effect, I said, and felt bad for being surprised, for not having imagined Hiram Raff capable of using phrases like that. Try that bottle. He picked a whiskey bottle up off the table, held it by the neck and swung it at the fallen chair. Something about the swing of his arm sent a little wave of warmth into me. The bottle broke beautifully. He stooped to pick up a shard of glass and then giggled. Look, he said, a little boy again, and handed it over. The edges. They were smooth, brittle, harmless. Come on, I said, and took his hand in mine, the glass shard pressed between our palms. I know where it happened. I didn't know where it happened, only where they found him. But maybe they were the same place. And if they weren't, maybe Hiram could show me how to trace back the steps of whoever dumped his body there. Behind the Performing Arts Center, we followed a paved walkway, down a hill, around a pond, over a bridge, to the edge of the woods, where the walkway petered out and the pavement stopped. A flimsy trail cut between the trees, and we followed that. They'd said it was one of those spots where kids went when they wanted to do things no one should see. Smoke dope, presumably, or drink, or have sex when the roommate would not leave and would not fall asleep. The walk wasn't long. Whatever privacy it provided would be risky, fraught with imminent discovery by other kids coming in search of some privacy of their own. Pine trees ringed the clearing. In February, they'd have been as green and thick and soft as they were right now. Two logs, covered in paint and carved initials, converged near the center. The highway rumbled not far away. The North Way, the road that could have taken him home. Dying, he would have heard the cars whispering away from him. Hiram let go of my hand and laughed again. The glass, it melted. He licked his palm. Sugar, he said. I licked mine. Sugar. Real broken glass glittered at our feet. I stepped forward and saw birds, hundreds of them, origami cranes and taxidermied crows, cute stuffed eagles and drawings on paper, chicken feathers. Some were soggy with rain and melted snow. Some had almost dissolved, while others looked brand new. Oh my God, Hiram whispered. Taylor. I know, I said. People loved your brother, he said. I know, I said. He was crying. I couldn't cry, so how was he? Boys don't cry, I thought. A hateful, ugly thought I did not believe, but that somehow lived inside my head, and instantly everything made sense. Why he hated the gossip, hated the attention from the girls, Hated what Sharon Baranchik had done to him, what his brother, what his father had tried to do. 
Hiram had a whole beautiful universe inside his head, but the world was determined that he be nothing but a body, something to play baseball, something to sleep with, just like it had done its damnedest to make me anything but a body, to make me afraid, to convince me not to dance the way my brother had danced, or change the colors of things the way my mother could. Wind stirred the trees. I hadn't had a plan hadn't known what to do, how I would draw Hiram's gift out and find a way for it to do what I needed it to do. Maybe I hadn't even believed anything at all would happen. Maybe the trip itself was what mattered. One more attempt to break the ice I saw everywhere but inside me. I stepped closer to him. He hugged me, clutching for me the way a hurt child clutches at a parent. I hugged him back, felt his heat, let it in. Our heads turned toward each other, our noses knocked. We laughed, and then I kissed him. His muscles tightened all up and down his body, but only for a second. He breathed out like someone letting go of a breath he'd been holding for years. Sugar, he said, licking his lips and smiled. We saw everything. I'm so sorry. Hiram said, sobbed. Both our faces were red and wet, our hands clasped. The ground was cool against our bare backs where our shirts had been pushed up, but warming. I wish I hadn't shown us that. I wanted you to, I said. At least it had been silent. Hiram's skill didn't extend to sound. Mouths had screamed wordlessly. Bones had broken with no more noise than the whoosh of the Northway. It's never worked like that, he said. The things I've shown have always been weird, broken, scary, disjointed. How did you? I kissed him again and hoped it would be explanation enough. Some things are simultaneously too obvious and too ridiculous to say out loud. Are you okay? Did it hurt? Barely, I said. It was nice. Yeah, Hiram said, shocked into smiling. It really was. His hand clasped mine. I let myself smile too. I let myself feel. Frozen things want to melt. Motionless things want to move. They felt good, the things I'd tried not to feel, the things I'd been afraid to do. I'd watched my brother do what Hiram and I had just done. There, on the ground, on a bank of February snow, with a boy he cared about. I'd seen the beauty of the act, seen his flocks of birds unfold in colors and sizes, more magnificent than anything nature could make. Love wasn't terrifying. Sex hadn't killed him. Bad men had done that. Overgrown boys pink with beer and rage over a football game that hadn't gone the way they wanted who'd stumbled upon something wonderful that their own ugliness saw as ugly. The other boy escaped. The other boy abandoned him. I shut my eyes and saw my kitchen, my parents, the ice. The ice I could melt. How easy it was to make things move when you weren't afraid to grab hold of them. Watch, I whispered to Hiram. There were hundreds of birds in that clearing. 
paper, plush, and cardboard. Gifts from people who loved my brother. Pieces of him. Physical expressions of what he'd made them feel. I thought about that. We watched those birds rise into the air. We watched them fly. This is such a heartbreaking story. It's so beautifully told, but it's also strangely uplifting in the way that Hiram and Taylor comfort each other in their shared grief. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I rarely see stories that talk about like happiness and connection at the same time as like extreme grief and loss. And I thought that this story struck that balance pretty perfectly. And it's so beautifully written, just like you said. There's a lot of poetry in it, it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I uh, just loved the bird imagery. It's mournful and celebratory at the same time. And every time it came up, I kind of felt like, uh, you know, I I, I find it. Found myself feeling sad and hopeful for the characters, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, it got to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, I didn't even realize that it was a story that was going to have magic until mm-hmm. like the first five or so minutes. It just comes in very subtly, but very seamlessly and authentically as well. I agree. I, I mean, it's understated, but at the same time, you know, it's very visual. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, they talk about uh, the mother who has the power to change colors and, and uh, the brother's ability to become a flock of birds while he's mm-hmm. dancing. I mean, th- this is not, you know, combat magic. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very understated. What would your power be, do you think? Oh, it, it, whatever my power is, it would also be my curse, I'm sure. <laughs> The great power. That's like, that's the age old adage from Spider Man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's it for this week. It's great to have you back, Nicole. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Of course. It's always wonderful to be here. And if you enjoy our show, why not give us a five star review wherever you listen to it? And join us next time when we take you to Kolkata for a very eerie ghost story. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 81, features Conspicuous Plumage by Sam J. Miller. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Keeler Lee. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.